0: Right now, I don't think our our industry can continue to do business like the old ways. I mean, I, I think every penny has to be maximized, every square inch of the field has to be optimized. And the only way to do that is really take advantage of all the data flowing through all of our machines.
1: Hello and welcome to another edition of the AEM Thinking Forward podcast, advancing the equipment manufacturing industry. I'm Dusty Weiss, AEM's professional nerd, story spinner and podcast host, and in this edition, a bumper crop of insight on the topic of precision agriculture. In 2018, there's nothing lo-fi about farming anymore, and there's enough high-tech gadgetry on the modern farm to make even NASA jealous. But all this evolving technology poses unique challenges for equipment manufacturers and the industry as a whole. In a double billing of guests for this podcast episode, Eric Lescaray from Agco Corporation will talk us through some of those challenges, especially the need to work together and expand rural broadband access, and Kurt Blades from the Association of Equipment Manufacturers will talk about AEM's role in helping the industry stay ahead of the curve. Helping you stay ahead of the technological curve is, after all, our goal here on the AEM Thinking Forward podcast. Every month, we'll be exploring a topic that executives, engineers, and innovators in the equipment manufacturing industry are talking about. If it's changing the construction, ag, mining, or utilities business, you'll hear about it here. But before we roll up our sleeves and dig into today's topic... You can take a minute to open up your podcasting app and make sure you subscribe to our feed so you don't miss an episode. The Association of Equipment Manufacturers Facebook page is also a great source for a lot of great information and that's worth a follow. And if you're more the email type, check out AEM.org slash subscribe to sign up for our twice-weekly e-newsletter, The Industry Advisor. That's a great source for timely industry news, like what's in the Precision Agriculture Connectivity Act, which was just introduced in Congress, a $1 billion infrastructure plan to repair roads and bridges in Kentucky, and how LiDAR-equipped bots are catching construction mistakes on the job site. Check out AEM.org news for more on these and other big stories in the industry. I mentioned there the Precision Agriculture Connectivity Act, and that's important because without a broadband connection to the rest of the world, the smartest precision agriculture equipment there is isn't going to yield the results that farmers need to stay competitive on a global scale. And our first guest is just one of many voices in the industry who say it's important for the equipment manufacturers to band together and advocate for better rural broadband. He's the director of strategic marketing at Agco Corporation, Eric Lescaray, thanks for joining us on the AEM Thinking Forward podcast.
0: Thanks for having me.
1: So, it's pretty safe to say that agriculture has come a long way from the little mid-century farm where my grandfather grew up outside Marshfield, Wisconsin. But when we talk about precision agriculture, what are the modern needs that manufacturers are trying to meet in their incorporation of new technology?
0: Well, I think manufacturers like Ico, um are incorporating new technologies in their products uh, to help growers Mostly, better optimize their farming operations uh, through a more accurate and precise and controlled process that would flow through the entire fleet and, and crop cycle. And then those those technologies also cover a very wide range of applications, uh, from guidance to rate and section control, data management, telematics, uh, automated hardware and software, sensors, robotics, and and all those different applications would um, ultimately provide. The ecosystem through which a grower uh, can manage their farming operations profitably and efficiently and in a sustainable manner uh, while meeting all the environmental uh, regulations.
1: And so what does that look like on a modern farm?
0: I think what farmers worry about is is really controlling their, their inputs and uh, maximizing their yield, right? Mm-hmm. So back to where it all started, if you look at GPS guidance technology, which was really the first application that was introduced in the industry, sometime in the 80s and 90s, you know, as the cost of that technology went down over the first 20 years, then it became completely integrated uh, into the the farms, uh, which was mostly used for reducing overlaps and missed areas at the time of planting or seeding on fertilizer and pesticide application. And that had a direct impact on, their, on reducing their input costs. And again, that was you know, way back in the 80s and 90s. And today, almost all of the equipment that we manufacture... Uh, for North America includes GPS guidance technology. So this is pretty much a given. Then the agronomist and the crop advisors that are working with the growers then need to complete a a very accurate soil sampling to determine levels of pH levels and potassium and to generate the right prescription for application of fertilizers. Then in addition to the soil sampling, then the collection of uh, as-planted, as-applied yield data through the crop cycle is critical uh, to be able to assess the areas of improvements in each field. So the collection of that agronomic data then becomes extremely critical to generate an accurate prescription map for optimizing seeding and fertilizer and reduce input costs and maximize yields. Then you start getting into data management technology. And again, this is something that you require to connect and collect a huge amount of machine and agronomic data through the crop cycle. And you need to normalize all that data in a way that uh, you can collect that across a mixed fleet and a set of different FMIS solutions or data analytics tools that are critical then to be able to make some... uh, data-driven decisions. Otherwise, if you don't have the ability to collect that data and make sense of it, then that's going to remain dormant, you know, locked into different servers or databases, uh, and nobody's going to use it. Then you have uh, what we call variable rate technology, or VRT, which really takes advantage of uh, all the onboard sensors and controllers and access to GPS, uh, which allows then the growers and the ag retailers to apply inputs at different rates through the field based on prescription maps generated by an agronomist or a crop advisor. Then you have the what we call telemetry technology, which are onboard sensors and give you a direct connectivity to a servicing entity, like doing some machine monitoring either at the dealer level or the, man- or the manufacturer's level to either optimize the fleet utilization or maybe you also make improvements on, on, on future products or current products to better manage the uptime and, and uh, efficiency management.
1: So at the end of the day, what we're basically talking about is more and smaller sensor packages that are on more different types of equipment providing more information to farmers in order to help them minimize their inputs and maximize their outputs and hopefully Mm -hmm. maximize their profits at the end of the day. Of course, farming is a way of life that's steeped in generations of tradition and best practices. So what challenges do farmers face in adopting these new technologies, and how can manufacturers work to make that technology more useful to them?
0: I, I think the the biggest challenge is to, to understand the return on investment of that technology. You have to have a really good understanding of the, the problem that you're trying to solve and the monetary impact. Of solving that problem by using that technology. Um, so I think the manufacturers need to spend time and efforts in training their dealers and, and their own staff on how to present the value proposition of those technologies to their own users. Um, you know, if I use ICO as, as an example over the past couple of years, the support of precision planting, we've, I think we've done a pretty good job uh, with our crop tour to explain, um, you know, the um, VE planners' advantage of using the type of technologies that we have uh, right now to be able to control seat placement and the ability to drive decisions in the cab, which, which would result in immediate reduction of input cost and maximization of yield. So again, this, this is a perfect example of really understanding the use case of that technology and seeing an immediate impact on your operation. I think the manufacturers also need to align on, on common technology language. Uh, like true ISO bus compliance for connecting uh, different brand tractors and implements, and the Tim compliance, which is also uh, driven by ISO bus on the guidance signals across different brand networks and receivers. Uh, I think the market right now is, is is driving all of us in that direction, but some are more eager to align with this strategy than others.
1: While we're on the topic of obstacles to farmers adopting these new technologies, when you and I got to meet at IQ, the International Construction and Utility Equipment Expo. You were there to make the case that agriculture equipment manufacturers need to work together on the issue of expanding high-speed broadband internet into rural areas. Why is that exactly?
0: I mean, If you look at, in the course of a crop cycle, typically uh, a typical farm would collect, I think it's up to 2 kilobytes of data right now per plant. So if you'd use an average of 30,000 plants, and I'm talking corn here per acre, that's about 60 megabytes of data per acre. So now if you try to put that in perspective in terms of how many millions of acres are planted, in in, in 2017 there was $90 million acres of acres of corn planted same thing in soybeans, 45 million of wheat, 12 million of cotton. That's a total of about 277 million planted acres in one year. So again, if you do the math, you know, 60 megabytes of data per acre, that's about 14.2 trillion megabytes of data. And I don't even know if that's a measurement, but tremendous amount of data. So <laughs> we're getting into you know, types
1: if, of bytes there that I'm not even sure I mean, exactly uh, yeah, what they're called. There's terabytes, know, and then it goes uh, up. A
0: huge amount of data. So based on that, I think it's around 60% of rural residents meet the current 25 megabytes per second broadband threshold, I think it is today. You know, 95% of the um, urban uh, residents have access to that. So there's there's a gap there. Uh, The other thing that's happening is I think the wireline broadband technology... Uh, what I mean is, is connected you know, by wire is still extremely expensive because I think it's, it's, it's requiring layering wires, and I think it's, it's a huge amount of capital required to do that. So what we started seeing is in the rural areas, I think the communities are, have moved towards uh, mobile wireless coverage. You know, it's cheaper to access, and now you have a lot of cellular networks uh, you know, moving towards the, you know, 4G, LTE, 5G, uh, which allows you to have uh, much greater coverage without having to spend a lot of money on wiring all that broadband technology the problem with that though is even when you look at satellite connections i think those are pretty limited i don't think they can go you know more than 15 megabytes per second so i think it's what we're facing right now is is you have a huge need in our market to access all this data which is usually in real time but because we are lagging behind in terms of infrastructure we're, we're resulting in in using um sailor phones and and all those different data sets uh, which is still limiting us so I think there's been a lot of work between, uh, I think AEM and the Ag Broadband Coalition. You guys have done a, a really good job with that. There's a lot of work done as, between the manufacturers and the Ag Gateway Adapt Open Source Project as well, which is, you know, helping standardizing um, all the data sets. So, trying to, you know, making sure that, um, you know, you you normalize all the data. Uh, so, between that and and working with the government and the industry to try to invest more into broadband in the rural areas hopefully will uh, help all of our um, industry.
1: I'm glad you mentioned that because that is an area where AEM has been at the forefront in Washington sort of working to organize a coalition of companies and advocates for the agriculture industry to push the government to expand rural broadband. And in fact, just recently, a bipartisan group of lawmakers introduced the Precision Agriculture Connectivity Act in Congress. This would create an FCC task force to examine the issue and make recommendations for how to fix it. Now, I worked in government for a little while, so I know a task force is not the solution, but it's a first step toward the solution. This is a topic that has broad implications beyond just the agriculture community as well. So as we continue to be advocates for expanding broadband access to rural areas, how do you go about making that case to the American public?
0: If you look at what's going on in the world, I think it's a matter of national security, I think. Being able to sustain yourself, you know, uh, to feed your own population, I think, is, is, is pretty critical. And then you think about the fact that you want to make sure that you have a, you know, a safe way to track your, you know, your food in the food chain. You take some, you know, pretty much some risk if you have to rely on importing all your food for your own population. So um, we are very fortunate here in this country to have, you know, the capacity that we have, the productivity that we have, you know, to feed our own people. Um, and we need to continue to invest money in the resources to allow us to do that. And then beyond that, we obviously want to be a net exporter for all the crops that we have and continue to compete against um, you know, other countries like Brazil. Uh, even China is increasing their own capacity to increase production. So uh, we'll be competing against them eventually in the world as well. So. Number one, is a matter of security, making sure we can feed our own people, and number two is to continue to be competitive in the marketplace, because that's bringing a lot of money back to our country from an exporting capacity standpoint.
1: We're talking with Eric Lescarre from Agco Corporation, and what makes precision agriculture such a unique topic to me is that it's not any one new innovation that makes it possible. It's the integration of all these different innovations into painting a more comprehensive picture of what's going on in the farm fields, but that said, what individual pieces of equipment are making the biggest impact in this new sphere, would you say?
0: Well, I think I'm going to talk from a from a cash crop producer perspective, I think it's, uh, it starts with the seed and the ability of the grower to precisely plant at the right place at the right time. So any planter-related technologies around GPS guidance, rate and section control, and the ability to control the placement is critical. I think you would use the same principle for any kind of application equipment, for the application of fertilizer and herbicides. And I think that goes down you know, into harvesting, making sure that you can harvest your crop in the right condition, in the right weather, so anything to do with you know, being able to, to, to merge different type of data layers, like I talked about earlier, bringing in weather data, uh, plus being able to, uh, during the uh, in-season, being able to adjust your, your machines uh, to take advantage of the conditions is, is critical.
1: What do you think are the next big breakthroughs that are going to help take precision ag on its next steps forward?
0: Well, I think what comes next for us, I think from a precision ag standpoint, I think the the digital revolution that I think it's impacting other industries. Our industry is facing a lot of realities like population growth, uh, limited acres, you know, weather patterns. Environment regulations and it really, it's going to force us to really adopt all those new digital technologies. I think that means that our, you know, manufacturers like us will have to shift towards using AI, for instance. So, you know, artificial intelligence, where you can collect and analyze a huge amount of historical and real-time data from different layers. Like yield, soil moisture, and so on, and then generate you know some some decisions off of that. Right now, I don't think our our industry can um, continue to do business you know in like the old ways. I mean, I, I think every penny has to be maximized, every square inch of the field has to be optimized, and the only way to do that is really take advantage of all the data flowing through all of our machines and you know all those different things that our farmers are working with. I think the biggest breakthrough is really I think a lot of uh, growers, including I think manufacturers, sometimes struggle with with the sheer amount of data. Uh, so now it's you know how do you make sense of that data? It's um, it's
1: almost like a danger of data overload in some ways. And how exactly. do you help them deal with that?
0: Uh, and again, I think data overload is is relating to the inability to to make sense of the data. So um, I think that's where. You know, manufacturers, OEMs, and software companies, I think we need to understand our growers' use cases and really what problem they're trying to solve, are we trying to solve, and how to solve that. You know, it's going to require a lot of very entrepreneurial type of model, you know, kind of similar to startups, which sometimes that doesn't necessarily fit, you know, within a, a manufacturer um, a model and approach. So I think it's, you know, you got to go to market, you know, then you need to test and validate that value proposition with the end users, get a very quick feedback, and really create some immediate value. I think our farmers are, are sick and tired of, you know, getting all those great technologies and and sometimes they're you know, they they're struggling to make it work or to set it up correctly or it doesn't really fit and integrate with their operation. So they gotta see the value immediately. Lowering your crop input cost or maximizing maximizing your yield. The, the other thing is I think from a data overload and making sense of that data, you know, we, we have to get scientific data analysts Within our organization, you know, uh, something with software companies where you can create some algorithms and rules that would generate some actions based on, you know, the data that you're collecting to make sense of that. Mm -hmm. And it's really up to the manufacturers and the software companies to do that.
1: And AgCode just recently wrapped up its iVenture Summit in Berlin, Germany, which I understand was focused on fostering these sorts of disruptive solutions. What are some of the big takeaways from the summit?
0: Well, I think it, the intent was to provide a platform to um, some of the agri-technology startups uh, where they could showcase their business models. And, uh, I mean, really what we've seen is there's a huge engagement from, from our farming community in really finding some solutions um, around what to do with big data and cloud software and and robotics, irrigation solutions. And I think you know what we've learned from that summit is is we, we don't lack the number of thought provoking tech savvy uh, people in our community. Uh, we don't la- we don't lack money either. I think there's a lot of venture capitalists that are willing to invest money. I think, again, the challenge is really understanding what exactly do the, you know, the farmers and the growers need? What are we tra- trying to resolve here and, and how do we integrate that with, uh, with our current operation? But it was very, very successful for us. You know, we attracted some very smart, tech-savvy uh, innovators. Uh, we connected them with, you know, with a lot of uh, investors. And obviously, I think you know, ACO is also very interested in working with those kind of companies and, and startups. So win-win for everybody.
1: Well, it has been absolutely edifying to talk. Uh, Eric Lascore, the Director of Strategic Marketing at Agco Corporation. Uh, Thanks for joining us. By the way, you mentioned earlier uh, about how currently uh, farmers in the U.S. are capturing about 2 kilobytes of data for every seed that they plant, and that comes out to something absurd like 14 million gigabytes of data each year. Uh, I did a little back-of-the-envelope calculations here, and just to put that number in perspective, that would allow you to download the entire Library of Congress more than 50 times. So it's uh, not peanuts that we're talking about here in terms of this data, not by any stretch of the imagination. But Eric, thanks so much for joining us on the Thinking Forward podcast. AGCO, of course, is certainly not the only company in the industry that's investing in these cutting-edge technologies. Many members of the Association of Equipment Manufacturers are making industry-leading breakthroughs in this area. And as a trade association, AEM is striving to do what it can to help each of its members see where precision agriculture might fit into their business plans. Joining me now with more is AEM Senior Vice President of Ag Services, Kurt Blades. Thanks for joining me, Kurt. Thanks for having me. First and foremost, uh, we were talking about this the other day, how so many of our members are finding new and exciting ways to put this technology to work in their business plans. What would you say are some of the biggest innovations in agricultural equipment today, and how are they changing the industry?
2: Well, it's no secret to those that are around agriculture and around farming that one of the most uh, complex you know systems of of technology has been in ag for years and years and years. They often often says that the, uh, the ag sector is more technologically advanced, second only to the military, and that's been going on for twenty, thirty years. A lot of the companies that are leading that charge are our members, uh, equipment manufacturers, that were really responding to initially to farmers' needs for things like. Yield monitoring and smarter ways to uh, to apply their pesticides, though, so they could use a little bit less of it. And then all of a sudden, there's some pretty cool things that are happening on the uh, the AI front. For example, one of our manufacturers, uh, John Deere, recently purchased a pretty interesting piece of technology through uh, Blue River, which allows uh, the machine to identify weeds and and uh, and spray a specific weed. Uh, on contact, real time in the field—it's a technology that offers a whole lot of pr- uh, f- promise. That's not going to be the only company that's doing that, but certainly is a pretty good indication of where the industry is going. Where you're, um, you know, not broadcasting large amounts of fertilizer or crop protection products, or even uh, uh, you know seeds that aren't going to germinate, but instead everything is very precise down to match the specific soil, match the specific uh, uh, growing conditions uh, to, to get the most out of that particular crop.
1: And of course, in an industry where inputs and outputs are so important, and uh, a small difference like that at the end of the day can make all the difference. We, we can be talking about, you know, potential benefits of tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars for a, a farmer that employs technology like this over the course of a decade.
2: You bet. You bet. I mean, the initially, it's a question that comes up a lot when you talk about uh, adopting precision farming practices because it's an investment. I mean, it's not going to be the cheapest thing in the world. And a farmer's got to see some benefit from it. Initially, you know, I use the example of auto steer. To begin with, that was an example that, that didn't necessarily have immediate economic benefit, but from a, uh, the ability for a farmer to work longer hours with less fatigue or perhaps um, uh, have a, a level of employee that, that could just simply drive the tractor made a whole lot of sense to them. Now what we're starting to see as this precision uh, technology really comes down to the output side then you, it gives you a chance to look at things like, uh, you know, certainly you mentioned uh, increased yields. That certainly is a, is a possibility. I think you also have to have to look at it holistically. Is is it are you reducing the uh, the input cost because you know it's no secret seeds are more expensive than they used to be, um, you know, crop protection products are more expensive than they used to be. So you want to do your best to to lower. Uh, Those input costs or lower the amount that you need to use. So you're so you're being a a smart user of the uh, of the inputs but then the other thing that absolutely comes into play here is the environmental impact and Farmers the are the original environmentalists and the last thing they ever want to do is apply Products onto the field that would potentially you know end up in the water stream or something like that So if they can ever do anything to reduce those type of things They're certainly going to do that and precision farming really allows all of that to come into play then it's really it's a no-brainer this is absolutely where the where the industry needs to go and is going in a in a pretty fast clip
1: so as companies have begun to deploy this technology and as farmers have begun to adopt this technology the Association of Equipment Manufacturers has really turned its focus onto helping raise the bar for the entire industry not just sort of the top-performing companies in it that are sort of on the front line of this technology what is it that made AEM decide that this was an issue that warranted uh, this sort of concerted push that's now being leveraged through initiatives like our Thinking Forward push?
2: Well, it's kind of interesting, as I mentioned, you know, the ag, ag industry and ag sector have kind of been on the forefront of, of technology for a number of years. And so, but, but, you know, a lot of that technology was being adopted specifically through the output. In essence, in in what you were looking for were, you know, ways to produce more crops, that same level of technology, as it was being adopted in another sector, such as construction or or mining, was really more uh, geared towards getting the most out of the particular machine and not as concerned about what the output is. What's really interesting right now, in and in a really fun way that uh, AEM is is starting to, to put our leadership to work here, is take what we've learned on the uh, uh, you know the construction side of the business, where we really have fine tuned that machine performance and being able to maximize that machine performance. Marry that with what we've been doing on the ag side for a number of years. We're trying to maximize the output of the machine, and that's where some really neat things are starting to happen. But also, uh, you know, we have a number of core services that, uh, you know, certainly have uh, application in precision farming and in data across all of our sectors. So that's things such as advocacy. Uh, when you begin to think about precision farming and the use of autonomous vehicles or the use of drones or things like that, there are some regulations that could dramatically affect whether or not a farmer can employ this particular technology. And we think our role as AEM is looking out for the industry, and making sure that our members have a voice as some of those decisions are being made. Or the same things uh, you know can go as you you know AEM is is quite known for its market intelligence and statistics programs and those are facts that we provide to our members and subscribers to be able to make good business decisions to understand what the market looks like it seems to be a very natural progression for we as aem to look at that uh, as a nice next step for us to adopt this technology and and kind of get a better feel for the industry to figure out what you know where are the investments happening what what needs to be happening from there Certainly, education is a big piece of it. You know, a role that we we play, and I think is really important, is we've got some great manufacturers. We've got some storied companies that have been around for you know a uh, hundred plus years, and they've they you know grew up to be a hundred year old company by making bad decisions. We do a pretty good job of taking everybody's opinions together and everybody's thoughts and processes together, and maybe adding our own little bit of creativity to help stretch the minds of our of our members to make sure that they're doing things in, in a way that that is going to continue to have, a, have an eye on the future.
1: Of course, like with any new technology, smartphones, music players and the like, you've got your early adopters and you've got some folks that kind of wind up being a little bit late to the party, mm-hmm. as it were. So when you're out there talking to leaders in the agriculture industry, uh, what do you <clears throat> hear from the ones that maybe aren't on the cutting edge of this uh, precision farming technology? And uh, what are they considering as they weigh whether or not to make an investment in this sort of technology?
2: I would I would venture to guess that every one of our members uh, is paying attention to the precision farming market, but they also may recognize that there's not necessarily a place for for you know if if you're running a pretty low pay, low tech piece of equipment, there may not may or may not be a role for precision farming directly, but certainly indirectly as it talks to the tractor it makes a whole lot of sense. And one other thing that's really interesting to take a look at in the precision farming space is taking a look at where the investments are coming from. And I find it really fascinating that there's companies that are historically not investors in ag are pouring big money into food production and food production research. The One that most comes to mind is IKEA. IKEA made a pretty major investment in, uh, in precision farming technology or in food technology uh, production. When you think about a dramatically different change in paradigm from where those dollars are coming into the market, you know there's going to be some innovation that we in our industry haven't thought of yet. And some of it's going to be pretty exciting.
1: Some of it's going to be pretty terrifying.
2: And and uh, you know there's no secret that it's going to change the way we run our businesses today.
1: The notion that I could go to IKEA and buy a a piece of farm equipment in three different boxes that I can fit in my car kind of blows my mind. Seems like an awful (laughs) idea. Yeah, yeah. And
2: with the, uh, (laughs) there's a whole different way we can, uh, you know, maintain equipment if we start doing it that way. I, I don't think that's necessarily the direction, but think more along the lines of uh, they're concerned about where the meatballs are being produced.
1: Okay. Kurt Blades, the Senior Vice President of Ag Services at the Association of Equipment Manufacturers. I think you were in the room a a couple weeks ago when we had the newly elected AEM board officers. They came and they visited us at uh, headquarters here in Milwaukee Mm -hmm. and addressed all of AEM's staff. And Todd Stuckey, the Senior VP at Kubota, told a kind of personal story about sitting on his dad's tractor down on the farm when he was a kid and how much it means to him to now have a hand in shaping the future of that industry that meant so much to him and his family. Uh, you yourself have very deep roots in agriculture. Where do you see the future of this business, and what does it mean to you to now have a front row seat in shaping it?
2: Well, I think if you talk to any farm kid my, like myself, we never really leave the farm. Uh, you know, I have not been actively involved in the farm as much as I would mm-hmm. like to over the years, but I still, my family still farms in Northeast Missouri. It's a lifestyle choice that many of us that are involved in agriculture choose. I mean, we can do lots of interesting things, but most of my friends and colleagues that I've met throughout you know the last thirty years working in agriculture, some of them grew up on farms and they chose to stay in the in the farming business or st- chose to stay in the agribusiness uh, sector and make nice careers out of it. Others are, are new to the sector. But one thing that comes completely, you know, just over and over and over and over again is those that kind of start to get involved in farming and ag business and, and food production, they don't leave. It's kind of a little bit of a, a, a community. And in fact, it's a, it's a community that we take our, our uh, responsibility quite seriously. So if you ask, how does it feel to be in the, in the front row of helping to shape what this industry looks like? It's an honor. It's an honor. and It's a whole lot of responsibility because I've got to, uh, you know, live up to the expectations that my grandparents and great grandparents, as they started off in farming and had, you know, wanted to make a nice life for themselves, I've got a responsibility to live up to their expectations, so we can ensure that this industry uh, and my family farm remains viable for, you know, my nephew and my you know, my kids and my grandkids, multi generations from now, because we fully expect that to be the case. We fully expect our family farm to be in business in another 100 years.
1: Of course, we'd be remiss if we didn't point out that anyone who's interested in the future of agricultural equipment had best not miss the Commodity Classic trade show. That's coming up. It runs from February 27th to March 1st, I believe it is, in Anaheim. Uh, I hear Anaheim is lovely this time of year, first and foremost, but what's on tap for the 2018 edition of the Commodity Classic?
2: Well, Commodity Classic is is a number of things. As you mentioned, a, a good key component of it is the trade show, but another very big component of Commodity Classic are the educational programs. So any farmer that's listening to the podcast that is interested in learning more about some of the technology that's happening, it's a great opportunity because it's a ton of educational programs. Any person that's remotely interested in food production or in the business of agriculture, it's a pretty great place for them to go as well. Because the trade show and the and the uh, the corresponding educational programs are really great meeting place for all of those folks that are in the industry. Specifically, AEM, we've got a number of things that we're doing at Commodity Classic this year. First of those is a a, a very exciting new. Uh, partnership that we have with ASABE to announce uh, um, uh, the Davidson Prize, which will be a a new award for the most outstanding uh, engineering innovation in ag engineering uh, uh, for the year. So that's going to be announced uh, at Commodity Classic this year for the first time. We're very excited about that. Specifically at the um, AEM booth, we're looking back at 2000. Uh, Seventeen as a year of celebration, uh, specifically on our uh, advocacy works. Uh, if you look at things such as the tax bill and some of the the changes that have happened uh, in terms of reductions of uh, regulations or some of the efforts that we've made on dairy uh, dairy regulations and robotic milting, milking, we can point to some pretty remarkable successes that AEM was uh, uh, kind of at the at the front helping to advocate and make some of these changes on behalf of the ag industry that really have some tremendous benefits to farmers. And we look forward to sharing those conversations with farmers one-on-one as they visit with us at the booth.
1: And if I'm looking to find out more or make plans to attend, how do I go about doing that?
2: Well, the most comprehensive place for them to find information about Commodity Classic is to go to the website, commodityclassic.com. That's where you'll see a full schedule as well as be able to register and find information on registrations and hotels.
1: Kurt Blades, you're the Senior Vice President of Ag Services here at the Association of Equipment Manufacturers. Thanks for taking the time today. I'd also be remiss if I didn't mention one more really cool event that's going to be going on at Commodity Classic. It's especially relevant to the topic of this edition of the AEM Thinking Forward podcast. And that is an AEM-sponsored panel discussion called the Infrastructure for New Technology. Moderated by AGCO Vice President Bill Hurley, this panel will highlight the awareness gap between rural broadband infrastructure and production agriculture. Attendees will learn everything they need to know to reach out to their elected leaders and be an effective advocate for rural broadband as a part of a national infrastructure package. This panel discussion will take place Tuesday, February 27th, the first day of Commodity Classic's three-day run, at 1.15 in the afternoon. Again, CommodityClassic.com has all the info you need to sign up and learn more. But Commodity Classic is not the only chance you're going to have this year to learn about some of the latest cutting-edge ag technology. In fact, if this topic tickles your fancy, you really ought to set aside October 16th on your calendar. That's the date of one of AEM's Thinking Forward summits this year. This one in particular at Purdue University in West Lafayette, Indiana. But they're making more than boilers at Purdue these days. In fact, they've got an industry-leading precision agriculture program. And Associate Director Dr. Dennis Buckmaster will be sharing some of their cutting-edge research with us there. Ms. Robbie Kelman-Baxter will also be discussing how the smartest, most successful companies are using new membership models to grow their customer base and expand revenue. Again, this event is on October 16th, and it's free to AEM members. You've just got to reserve your spot while they're still available. Go to AEM.org slash think to do that and browse the list of seven other free Thinking Forward summits. I'm certainly going to be going to the one at Purdue, proudly wearing my Wisconsin Badgers pin, of course, but there are other cool events this year that you'll want to check out as well. April 3rd at Carnegie Mellon in Pittsburgh, May 8th at M-Hub Innovation Center in Chicago, June 5th at the 3M Innovation Center in St. Paul, Minnesota, and so many others all on a different forward-thinking topic that's going to change the way we do business in equipment manufacturing. So take a look at AEM.org think and see where these events might fit into your schedule this year, because all we ever hear from members is, how did I go so long without making it to one of these I learned so much? But for now, that's going to wrap up this edition of the AEM Thinking Forward podcast. If you enjoyed your time here, leave a comment in the podcast feed and don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss the next edition. If you do the LinkedIn thing, you can follow the Association of Equipment Manufacturers there for some timely updates as well. And if you've got something you're dying to get off your chest, shoot me an email direct at podcast at AEM.org. The AEM Thinking Forward podcast is brought to you by the Association of Equipment Manufacturers. Little Glass Men does the music. And for AEM, thanks for listening. I'm Dusty Weiss.